Today we're going to be continuing in Exodus chapter 32, as Morgan just read, verses uh, 15 through 24. And the, I've titled this message today, A Journey of Deliverance from Intercessory Prayer to Action. And we're going to see today how Moses goes from praying on behalf of his people to acting on behalf of his people. I want, I want you to pray with me this morning as we begin our sermon. God, you are so good, and in your goodness, Lord, you have um, called us to a new life, to a new way of living, a new standard of living, Lord. Um, you have measured us, Lord, uh, not against uh, what we can do or who we are, but you have measured us against Jesus, and you have given us life through Jesus, and that is a standard that we are all to follow, as a standard we're all to uh, hope and strive to keep. Lord, would you help us in your goodness and uh, your kindness and your mercy to be more like Jesus, to be holy as, as he is holy? Would you help us to pursue him um, every day in spirit and in truth, Lord? God, I pray today that um, as we're reading through this passage, Lord, that we would take on a seriousness of sin, that we would understand that sin is uh, not something to be brushed aside, to be laughed at, to be joked about, um, to belittle, but sin is something that we should take seriously. We should mortify sin in our own flesh, and we should seek to help others do the same in theirs. Lord, would you teach us from your word today? Would you help us to be serious about learning from you, um, to find joy in your words, to find peace, to find freedom in your words today? We love you so much, and we praise you. We owe everything that we have to you, uh, that matchless name of Jesus, and it is in his name that we pray today. Amen. Over the last two weeks, we have been discussing this one major drama this story revolves around two major scenes happening simultaneously at two different locations. In one instance, we have Moses who has gone up to Mount Sinai, uh, and we see today that he has Joshua with him. Joshua had gone up to Mount Sinai. He had stopped about halfway along on the journey, and Moses went up the rest of the way to meet with the Lord. And that's one scene that we saw. And then another scene we've seen there we go, is Joshua, I mean, is, um, is the people of Israel. And the people of Israel down at, are at the, the foot of the mountain. And they've created this golden calf, and they're throwing this party that would honestly even make Hugh Hefner blush. It's a party of debauchery and idolatry, and, and all of this is, is one story that's going on. And at the end of our text last week, we saw that Moses had been informed by the Lord what had been going on. And the Lord threatens to destroy his people. But Moses, as a good leader would do, as a man of God would do, as a woman of God would do, he prayed, he interceded on behalf of his people, and the Lord withheld his wrath, withheld his destructive wrath from the people of Israel. The Lord relented to some degree. And now Moses is going to go down and he's going to meet with his people, and he's going to set things straight. Now, as a small continuation from last week, we must understand this thought. Prayer from an intercessor can change lives. It can make a difference in the scheme of someone's life. It can make a difference in the heart of God. It can make a difference in someone's life. It can stand in the gap for those who are weak or who have fallen away or for those 
who are lost. Now today we learn something about intercessory prayer that is invaluable. Intercessory prayer itself is invaluable, but intercessory prayer should almost always be followed by some action of the intercessor. If God leads us to pray on behalf of someone else, I'm almost guaranteeing you, friends, that he's leading us to act on behalf of someone else. Today we witness Moses. He goes from Mount Sinai. He meets Joshua. And Moses and Joshua go down and they meet the people and they take action. Our narrative today begins in this way. It begins with Moses going down the mountain. He meets Joshua where Joshua has been waiting and they descend the mountain together. We also find out at this point that Moses has the two tablets with him. These tablets contain the words of God. They were written by the hands of God on both sides of the tablets. That message is in our text today, and it's important because what the Lord is trying to tell us, and this is a side sermon of sorts, is that the words that Moses carried were not the words of Moses, but they were the words of God. They were, at the time, the most valuable items in the world. The most important document, if you want to use that term, documents written. They were intended to be given to the people as ordinances to follow and then placed in the Ark of of the Covenant in order that God's people would always have this testimony of the faithfulness of God and what God had required traveling and going with them wherever they went. And as Joshua and Moses descend the mountain, uh, they begin hearing loud noises coming from the camp. Now, they must not have been close enough to distinguish because there's this little conversation that happens with Moses and Joshua. And they're like, what is that? You know, what is that noise? And Joshua being the military leader, he says, uh, he's a man of war. You know, he says, that is the sound of war. It must be the sound of war. But Moses wasn't convinced. So they walked a little bit further. At least this is how I imagine it in my head. They walked a little bit further. And Moses says, no, this is not war. This isn't the sound of victory or the cry of defeat. But it's the sound of singing. So they walk down further to the foot of the mountain. And it's at that point that it is revealed to them just what is happening. And Moses is hot. Moses is angry. Now the Lord had told, he had informed Moses at the top of Mount Sinai what was happening. But I'm sure Moses didn't realize at that point just how bad it was until he saw it with his own eyes. And when he sees it, he is overcome with anger. A A few years ago I was working on a house and we had renovated the house top to bottom. Painted the outside, painted the inside, done tile work, done other flooring, top to bottom. And then about... Three to, three, 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 three to four weeks after I finished the house, I get a call from the person who owned the house, and he said, Bryce, are you ready to redo Choctaw Trails? Some of you probably know this story. Bryce, are you ready to redo Choctaw Trails? And I said, redo Choctaw Trails? What, what do you mean? And the, it was in the winter, and the batteries had gone out in the thermostat, and it shut the heat off, and a pipe busted along the, the roof or the ceiling in five different places. And um, so he had told me that the house was a disaster. He had told me that it was going to have to be renovated. As a matter of fact, he told me that the only way that they knew that it was flooding is that the neighbors saw water cascading out of the garage and down the driveway, flooding the street. Now, I expected a disaster when I went over there. And I, and, and I thought I was prepared for what 
I was going to see. But when I got there, uh, all of this work that I had just done three weeks ago, the walls were messed up, the sheetrock had been torn off the walls, the, the paint was peeling and bubbling everywhere, the ceiling had collapsed in like three quarters of the house, and I wasn't exactly prepared for the mess that I had seen. The flooring was ruined in a lot of the house. There was, there was chaos and disaster everywhere. I spent the first five or so minutes sort of in like an anxious shock. And then I was upset because all of the work that I had done had just been wiped away. On a, on a much greater level, this must have been how Moses felt. The Lord had warned Moses just of what was going on, but he might not have quite been prepared to handle what he saw until he saw it. And he was angry. So he takes the tablet of the law and he throws them down at the foot of the mountain. Now this was symbolic. This was the same foot of the mountain where earlier the people said, we will serve the Lord and we will what? Keep his statutes. Now his statutes are right in front of them and they have gone wild. But also the tablets of the law were broken at the foot of the mountain, showing that at the same place where they promised to keep the law, they had actually broken the whole law. Now they had just broken several, just a few of the laws. They had only broken probably two, maybe three of the laws. But remember what James says about keeping the law? James says if you fail to keep one aspect of the law, then you break the whole law. Moses then took up the golden calf, he took the idol, and he melted it down, and he pulverized it. Knocking it into dust, which makes me a little uncertain exactly how the idol was made in the first place. At first I thought they might have like melted the gold and then cast it. But it seems like maybe what they did was they took, a wood, they took wood, they carved the wood, they melted the gold, and then they overlaid it. That's what it seems like, because I don't think that gold pulverizes very easily, at least with the machines they had. They're not making too much gold dust, probably. So Moses takes this calf and he burns it to ashes, he pulverizes it, and then he puts it in the water supply, and he makes them drink. Then he goes to the one he left responsible for the people. He goes to Aaron, and he asks, what have you done? Aaron, being a man of honor, of course, does what any man of honor would do. He, he blamed someone else. He blamed the people. He blamed Moses. He said, well, you were gone, Moses. And then worst of all, worst of all, Aaron blamed the fire. Do you notice what he says at the end of the text? He said, they handed me the gold, and I threw it on the fire, and out popped a calf. Like the fire had given birth to the calf. I guess Moses had seen some fantastic things, so maybe Aaron thought, maybe if I just say a miracle happened, he'll believe me. He blamed the people. He blamed Moses. He blamed the fire. Aaron really stepped up to the plate as the second command and really took responsibility for himself. Reading this story got me thinking about what is actually happening in this story. It, really, this story is a story of sin it's a story of failed leadership, at least temporarily. 
and a story of God's man stepping in for the recovery of his people. Moses went down. He went down to the foot of the mountain. He addressed the people directly about the sin that they were in. And their response, friends, is often, it's really telling. It's really telling because their response is it mirrors a pattern that we see even today, that we see in our own life. So I've pulled out three observations from the way that the people of Israel responded to show you that their pattern of responding to sin is honestly really the same pattern that people have followed throughout time. So these are three observations that I see from their sin and their response to Moses. The first thing we need to see and understand is that sin is a celebration of misplaced delight. Sin is a celebration of misplaced delight. Moses and Joshua must have been surprised when they came down the mountain. I can imagine that Moses felt a little betrayed by what he saw. He was just up on the mountain praying that God would not destroy his people, asking God to hold off his wrath from them. In Moses' mind, he was probably thinking, all right, I'll go, Lord, I'll go down and I'll handle this. this is, we, we've been here before. This is not that big of a deal. I'll go and take care of it. Like me with the flooded house, he could hardly imagine what had happened at the foot of the mountain until he had seen it with his own eyes. And he gets down to the mountain and, and they're having this hedonistic festival to another god. Now, you've likely had the same feelings of betrayal before, right? You've stepped up for someone or you've vouched for them. And then they betrayed you in a certain way. Friends, sin is a betrayal. It's not only a betrayal to those around you, but it is a betrayal to self. And more importantly, it is a betrayal to the God of the universe. But sin is not often seen as a betrayal because sin is fun. It is comfortable. It is natural. And often it feels so right. And it's necessary for Satan. It's necessary for the enemy to use pleasure to get us to sin or else no one would do it. If sin wasn't natural, if sin wasn't fun, if it wasn't comfortable, if it didn't feel so right, then we wouldn't do it. And so Satan, the enemy, has used sin, has formed sin into something that seems such like such a natural part of life. It seems so right so that we will be so, as the Bible says, easily entangled in it. If sin never gave some worldly pleasure or, or some comfort, we wouldn't have a problem with sin. But because we are born into sin, we have a nature, therefore, that longs for sinful things, we are often right at home in sin. The problem here wasn't that the people were dancing. It wasn't that they were celebrating. It wasn't that they were having fun. The problem is that they, del- that they aimed all of their delight to a false god. They aimed all of their delight to the wrong God. It was idolatry. And often this is the major difference between good delight and sinful delight. Most sin, friends, I would assert to you, is taking the things of God that God has given us for good and enjoying them in a hedonistic or an overindulgent or in a a way that was not prescribed by God. 
It is when we take the things of this world that are meant for our pleasure and pervert them by worshiping another God, using them or consuming them in a way that God has not prescribed or for strictly selfish reasons that natural things that are not always uh, disapproved by God become unapprovable. Philip Ryken in his commentary on this said, It was a raucous and indecent celebration bordering on the, uh, of the Essene. The Israelites came, uh, camp had been become drunken, carousing, pagan reveling, and bawdy singing. What Joshua and Moses heard was the sound of people partying. And this wasn't just any party. It was a celebration it wasn't, excuse me, it wasn't a celebration of Moses' return or the work of the one true God, but it was a celebration of the work that they had done with their own hands. It was a celebration of the calf that they had made. Friends, sin is not bad because it's just sin or because it's always hurtful, but sin is bad because it is a celebration of our rebellion against God. This scene was wild, it was out of control, it was full of joyous, joyful, carnal pleasures to pagan gods. And I want to make a bold assertion to you today, friends. This picture that we see here is a picture that we also see today. Because I would assert to you that 100% of sin involves idolatry. A hundred percent of sin involves misplaced delight. Whereas being in Christ, we are new creations and the old has passed away. And our delight is to come, is to, is to go towards the God of the universe, the creator, the one who has saved us, the one who sustains us. When we sin, when we're caught in sin, our delight is shifted to something else. Where we are supposed to love God and enjoy him forever, we sacrifice our love for God and our joy for him to a joy and a love that is fleeting that is passing away, and friends, is always idolatry. Because when we sin, friends, whether intentional or not, we are finding hope in, joy in, pleasure in, peace in, security in, or whatever in, something else, therefore making that our God. And here the people of God are at the very place where they promised to follow the Lord a few weeks ago. They are now betraying him to his face. They have now slipped in to worshiping other gods. Just a few months ago, they were dancing with Miriam, celebrating the rescue from Egypt. They were dan- now they are dancing and relev- uh, reveling excuse me, back in their slavery. And we would be foolish if we did not see ourselves in this. I think it would be helpful to recognize how we fall so quickly back into those old traps. How we fall so quickly back into sin. Why sin is so enticing. And why we delight in sin. And, and the first is simply this. And this is not up here. If you want to write them down or just remember them, it'll be helpful either way. Sin is enjoyable. The reason that we fall into sin is that sin is enjoyable. Sin is much more easy than committing to and following through on our commitment to the Lord. It's easier. It's easier to sin because it's enjoyable. I will tell you, as a Christian who's been a Christian for a long time, committing to and following through on that commitment to the Lord is often much more personally difficult than just remaining in sin. 
Just keeping my commitment to the devil is easier than keeping my commitment to the Lord. And so one of the reasons we fall back into that sin that so easily entangles us, that's so enticing, is because it's enjoyable. Another reason is because sin is comfortable. In order to follow God, friends, we have to change. We have to move. We have to become different. We have to take up the words that we are a new creation and follow that. But in order to just continue following the enemy, all we have to do is stay in our comfort zone. All we have to do is continue on in the path that we were continuing in. And so sin is comfortable. It's easy. It's what we know. It gives us peace and security because we have been wrought with it for so long. That what we know is easier than what we know is better. Sin is enjoyable. It's comfortable. Sin, another reason why sin is so enticing and it entangles us is because sin is easier to enter and difficult to leave. There is a wide open door that leads to a path of fallenness, that leads to a path of sin. But there is just a very, very small back door The reason it's easier to enter, I mean, the reason sin is so enticing and it entangles us is because it takes way more work to abandon sin than to begin in sin. And the fourth is this, and this is what keeps us all away from the Lord when we're away from the Lord. Sin numbs our sense of truth. It numbs our sense of truth. Sin literally makes us feel like everyone else is the problem, and we are right. We know what's right. We know how to do what we're doing. We've been functioning pretty well the way we've been functioning. Anyone who tries to tell me differently, they're the problem and not me. Sin numbs our self to the truth. And the only way that we abandon the enjoyable nature of sin, the comfortable nature of sin, the easy to enter and difficult to leave nature of sin, is if our minds are shaken and stirred and moved to the truth. And that is why it's so vastly important, friends, that if we are going to stand as intercessors for our friends in prayer, we must stand as a voice of God for our friends in prayer. I mean, in in life, in real life, in action. If we stand as intercessors in prayer, let me try that again without messing it up. If we stand as intercessors in prayer, we also must stand as the voice of God in action. Because our friends who have fallen away, when we have fallen away, we are numb to what we are doing. We need someone to slap us on the back of the head like Agent Gibbs from NCIS. We need someone to shake us up. We need someone to help us to realize that the path we're going down is not the path that God has chosen for us. It's the path of the enemy, and it's the easy way out. Friends, you need to know this as sort of a summation of what I just said. If we are on the path of least resistance, we are not on the path of God. If you are on the path of least resistance in your life, you are not on the path of God. And if the path that you're on is being resisted by your church friends and godly people, then you know that you're not on the path of God. Ultimately, we find ourselves comfortable, we find ourselves delighted, and we find ourselves kneeling in worship. And when we look up, 
we see that we're probably most likely worshiping a reflection of ourselves instead of the face of God. So from this position, it's natural to want to stay, and it's natural to want to make excuses. Sin is pleasurable. It is delightful. It's comfortable. It's easy. But it is a misplaced delight. The second thing you need to see is this. Sin, when exposed, causes the sinner to deceive. Look at verse 21. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. That, his Lord right there is Moses. You know the people, and, and, the, and the Lord also, but you know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us as For this Moses, the the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They, They thought Moses had been dead, eaten by wild animals, frozen at the top of the mountain. Who knows? So I said to them, let any, let, let, Any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. In his most natural move, Moses goes to the man that he left in charge. And he probably took Aaron to the side and he said, Look, dude, I know these people can be real jerks. They have been to me for the last several months. But you really messed up here. You're going to have to give me something to work with. Tell me, what, what did they do? What did they do? Did they tie you up? Did they threaten you with hot pokers? Did they kidnap your children? What was it, Aaron? Give me something. Because you, you can't be this dumb. And Aaron said to Moses, you you know these people. I mean, they've been bad to you. You know, every time you did something good for them, they were unappreciative and they tried to get us to go back to Egypt. (laughs) They're persuasive. They they said you weren't coming back. They told me, they told me, make gods for them. And they gave me their gold and and I just, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I just put it in the furnace and then I heard a ding all of a sudden and out popped a calf. It's honestly the weirdest thing ever, Moses. I don't get it. I don't know either. You Maybe you should ask them. I'm as shocked as you are. Of course, this is not what happened, right? It appears that the people came to Aaron with very little persuasion. And he takes their gold. And he carves a calf. And he even says, tomorrow we feast to the Lord. He is proactively and actively leading this. The people here, but, es- but especially Aaron, are examples of what happens when you are still tethered to your old life. When you are still chained down to your old life. We discussed this some a few weeks back, but Aaron takes the easy route. He goes back to the gods of Egypt. He went back to the sin that so easily entangled him. Aaron does something that almost every person who is enslaved to sin does. I'm telling you this because I've read it in the Bible, but also because I've been involved with countless situations where it comes true. A person in the church has fallen away from God and from the church. They have unresolved sin and a great tension between them and the church, a great chasm between them and the church forms between them and the body of Christ. And then this pattern of explaining things away happens. Aaron displays it. I've done it in the past. And some or likely all of you in here have done it. 
Aaron is trying to get the attention off him. He's trying to get the conversation off of his sin, which is a common thing that we do. And he does a few things that are worth noting. This is not in my outline, but it was only because Blake got in late last night and I finished this late last night. So you should, you should write these down if you're taking notes. A few things that people, when they're caught in sin, they do in order to blame shift or throw the attention away or, or, or down, you know, downplay, and that is the first one. He downplays the seriousness of his sin. He downplays the seriousness of his sin. He says, whoa, whoa, Moses, don't let your anger burn against me. Don't t- speak, to me for, speak to the Lord for me. Don't let the Lord's anger burn against me. He downplays sin. Honestly, we didn't know what we were doing. You left us. You didn't give us much instructions. It's okay, though. This is not that big of a deal. We'll get this right. Don't, don't, let, don't let your anger burn too hotly against me. Almost without fail, the first thing that someone does when they are approached about their sin is to downplay the seriousness of their sin. Either thinking that people need to relax about what happened or that they're not as deep into it as other people think they are. Or that even the Lord needs to relax because this, hey, there are people out there murdering and there's serial killers and there's drug addicts. My thing is just, it pales in comparison to theirs. Friends, there is a hole in our holiness when it comes to personal responsibility for our sin. In that we don't take sin seriously enough. And when entangled by sin, it never actually, in our minds at least, seems as bad as it actually is. So Aaron here downplays the seriousness of his sin. Another, almost without fail, another characteristic of someone who is approached about their sin. He shifts the blame to others. He shifts the blame to others. He told Moses, Moses, you know these people. They're very persuasive. And honestly, Moses, you were gone. You know, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened, Moses. Interestingly enough, Moses wasn't to blame. The people weren't to blame for what Aaron had done. Aaron was personally responsible for himself. Now, I found that this is one of the main deflecting mechanisms of people caught in sin. When I was younger, I blamed it on not having a consistent youth minister or not having anyone to disciple me personally. When I was called in sin, I blamed it on someone else. As a pastor, I've been blamed more times for people's failings than I've blamed for their personal discipleship. When I was a youth minister and I met Anna and I started spending time with her, one of my teens all but said that it was my fault and Anna's fault that he had fallen away. When people are approached about their sin, they almost always try to put the blame on someone else. Because when they do, it relieves guilt. It justifies rebellion. And it gives an excuse for further withdrawal from the fellowship of God. This is one of the first sins in the garden, after all, was it not? The first sin was eating the forbidden fruit. There was another one about lying and deceiving the Lord, hiding from the Lord. And then what did Adam and Eve do? They passed the blame along. Adam said, the woman you gave me. Eve said, the serpent you created. One of the sure signs of someone who's not ready to repent, someone who needs to repent, is they put the blame for their, where they are personally responsible for their sin. They put it on to someone else. Aaron minimized his sin. He blame shifts to others. And he turns another important one that you might not have caught. He turns into a passive character in the story. 
He turns into a passive. Aaron basically says, well, I was just over here minding my own business, Moses. And bam, these people were all up in my face. I didn't know what to do. I was overwhelmed. And all I did was take the gold that they handed me and threw it into the fire, and a calf popped out. Honestly, it happened so fast. I'm not really sure what happened, Moses. Which got me thinking, you know what is crazy about humanity? Especially Christians. When we sin or when we do something shameful, we always play such a small role in the act. But when we do something we're proud of, something that the Lord approves, we were front and center in that work. When husbands and wives fight in their relationship, it's almost exclusively the one who is putting the blame on the other or vice versa. One played a passive role and the other played an active role. But you can guarantee when people start talking about things that they have done in their relationship, it just is prominent. They are the front and center figure. Friends, sin not only separates us from God, it separates us from the church, but it also separates us from the truth. It blinds us to our faults. This is why Aaron said, I don't really know what happened, Moses. It's these people. They pushed me into it. Now, if Aaron had, if Moses had come down from the mountain and Aaron had been leading the people in revival, he would have been like, Moses, what do you think? Look what we've done while you were gone. No idols here. But because it didn't work out, because the people were caught in sin, Aaron becomes a passive character in the play. This ties into the last thing that Aaron did, and these last two points are not so dissimilar. Aaron turned himself into a passive character and he hides the real details of the story and reveals only minor truth. Moses, I was just minding my own business and the next thing I know, their gold was in my hand and out popped a golden calf. Can you believe what they did, Moses? It amazes me how people who are trapped in their sin misremember so many details of what has happened in their life or forget the major details of their involvement or our involvement in sin, what actually happened in the story. What actually happened is, well, Aaron asked them for their gold. He melted it down. He hand-engraved a calf, and then he led them in worship to a false god. And after that, he said, tomorrow we will feast again in worship, and this calf will be at front and center. It seems like hand engraving a calf would be a detail that you might not leave out or might not forget. I don't know. It seems like it would take a little bit of work. But Aaron leaves it out. Friends, I need to tell you something from our story. And if, you need to, if, you ta- if you've missed or fallen asleep or got distracted or I've been boring to you this morning, you need to hear this. This is the one takeaway you need to hear if you've got nothing else. We are not passive in sin. It does not sneak up on us. Or it does, excuse me, it does sneak up on us, but it's only because we have chosen to close our eyes. It's only because we have chosen to let our guard down. We have chosen to stop training, as Paul says, to beat our spiritual lives into submission, as he said. We choose to submit to something else other than the Lord. And worst of all, like Aaron said to Moses, 
We have said in our hearts that our wait for a great intercessor to come is not worth it compared to the fleeting pleasure of this world. It wasn't Moses' fault that Aaron sinned. It wasn't the people's fault that he sinned. It was Aaron's fault. And the only reason that it snuck up on him is because at some point in the 40 days, he decided to stop dying to himself. He stopped pursuing the Lord. He stopped wanting the Lord more than the world. Can I tell you something very serious, friends, today? All of these deflections, these half-truths, it may work with your mama and your daddy. You may be able to convince your family. You may be able to even convince your friends or your church friends or sometimes even your pastor. But Aaron and Moses and the people of Israel and you and me, we are not held accountable to those people, but to a God who sees who knows, and who remembers. A God who on judgment day will burn up your excuses with your dead works and then will see what is left. And if that refiner's fire does not reveal a gradual and continual work towards Christ in your life, you will be cast away. You will be set apart with those who will be thrown into the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So I ask you, Wouldn't it be great if we stopped putting our energy into excuses to appease the masses and started working and putting our energy to Christian character that pleases the Lord? Wouldn't it be better to put our energy into breaking the chains of our old life instead of shackling ourselves to it? Instead of putting our energy into making people think that we have a new life. The Lord sees, He will judge the living and the dead, and no excuse, no downplay, no blame shift, no amount of deflection will save us from that judgment. On the same note, our story tells us one more thing about sin and why it is so important to have an intercessor who stands not only in the gap in prayer, but in the gap in person. Sin, when left alone, becomes a cup of wrath. Sin, when left alone, becomes a cup of wrath. What did Moses do? He took the idol. He burned the idol up. He grounded it up. He ground it up. And he put it into the drinking water. And he made the people of God drink. Friends, Moses had made intercession on their behalf. Therefore, they were not destroyed. But if we think for one minute that their sin didn't come with consequence and didn't come with wrath, then we are crazy. If you as a believer in here, uh, you as a believer in here, Jesus has interceded on your behalf. He has made intercession for you. But if you think for one minute that your sin doesn't come with consequence, you are crazy. We will see as we continue our story this wrath brought upon them. No, they were not utterly destroyed, but they still faced the wrath of God. Moses made them consume their own God. He made them drink their own God, I think for two reasons. The first is because he wanted them to know that they were defiled by that God. The wa- just as the water had been defiled, they drank the ashes of that calf, that calf that defiled the water, so that they can know that that calf defiled them 
also. He wanted the memory of their sin to be on their hearts for forever. So he did something fantastic, spectacular. But he had another reason also. He wanted them to know that the sin that they were pursuing was trash. It was waste. And it was not worth pursuing. How does he do this? He burned their gods. He ground up their gods. He made the people consume their gods. And then in the natural order of things, they defecated their gods. Proving to them and all generations that our God will not be tested. And that at best, all other gods are defecation. And should be seen as such. And even more so, friends, the same fate awaits anyone who thinks otherwise. The story of the gospel is one of writing misplaced delight, of placing sin and an old life into submission, of surrendering to the Lord and waiting on Him. Friends, you need to hear this. If our life is modeled by sin, one day the Lord will burn that up and He will make us consume that. But there is something else that we can consume. We can drink from the fountain of God. And as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, he who drinks will never thirst again. We can open the fount of grace, of mercy, of peace, of hope, of delight, and just drink from a fountain that has a never-ending supply. Or in the same way, friends, we can drink a cup of wrath that also is an eternal cup of of wrath and has a never-ending supply. So what do we do? What do we do? We repent of our sins. We flee. We flee from our old life. We search every corner, every crevice, every nook and cranny, as my grandmother would have said. Every nook and cranny of our life. We search it out and we see Is it something that is drawing me to God or is it something that needs to be drawn out of my life? And then we take action. We take action. Because the truth is, friends, if we leave any bit of that old life in our life, we will be easily drawn back and over time easily entangled. One thing about that story of the house that flooded I decided, I didn't know very much, I had never done a thing like this, and I decided that there was one piece of sheetrock that I was going to leave in the ceiling, and it had, had, it had been stained. It had been covered by the, this water. It had been stained. It was bad sheetrock. But I was going to leave it because it wasn't soft. So I replaced the whole thing, replaced every bit of it, except this one section. Because I knew that if I replaced that section, it meant that I was going to have to tear a little bit of the wall out and replace that too. A few weeks later, or a few days later, I get a call. Bryce, the stain has come through again. 
Friends, sin is always a disaster. But the most disheartening thing, the most disastrous thing about sin is when Christians allow just a little bit of it to be left over. Just enough to be left over to where they can be tethered to it, to where they can be chained to it, to where they can be drawn back so easily and so quickly to it. Sin is not something we can discount. It's not something we can say, well, it's really not bad comparatively. It's not a this or that type of thing. Well, I'm not doing drugs, but I am doing this, but this is not nearly as bad as doing meth. Sin is not something that we can just so easily brush aside. We can so easily make excuses for. It needs to be mortified in our body. That means killed. That means put away, wiped out, buried and dead. Not only that we may follow Jesus the way we should, but that we will never be entangled to that sin again. Pray with me today. Lord, thank you that you have sent an intercessor on our behalf that not only prays and intercedes for us to the Holy Spirit, to the Lord, but he intercedes and he interceded in person, Lord. He made intercession for us in life. And through his life and through his death and through his burial and through his resurrection, we can have life. We can abandon our old life. We can abandon sin. We can pursue the things of God. Lord, would you teach us to follow you, to love you, to obey you, to long for you, and to abandon sin.